All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. I have to apologize for the poor sound quality guys for this intro. I had to record in my office today, and the air handler uh, cannot be silenced. So this is Chapter 4, Supplemental Episode 5, and today we're going to be talking to Kevin O'Connor, co-founder of the granddaddy of all internet advertising companies, DoubleClick. Chances are, if you've seen a banner ad over the last decade or so, it was served up behind the scenes by DoubleClick's Dart technology. Now the backbone of Google's banner ad inventory, DoubleClick was one of the first advertising companies formed, one of the largest of the dot-com era, and as we'll discuss in this interview, DoubleClick is really the godfather of the New York City Silicon Alley tech scene. So, here is Kevin O'Connor. Kevin O'Connor, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. So uh, you grew up in the Detroit area and you went to the University of Michigan, is that correct? I did. Uh, electrical engineering was your degree? It was electrical engineering. I didn't have much computer uh, science back then and thought I'd be interested in hardware. I was wrong. <laughs> and you, uh, you immediately... Uh, took the entrepreneurial route. You started a, a company right out of college, right? Uh, right during college. So I was going to go get my PhD. Uh, that was my dream. Uh, and the day I got accepted into uh, the PhD program at Michigan, I decided to go uh, start a company with a, a buddy that I interned with. Uh, it was the PC had just come out, uh, and everyone was dropping out of college, it seemed like, to pursue the PC. Thought it would be something big. And what was the name of the company? Intercomputer Communications Corp. And what did it do? We tied uh, uh, we tied PCs into mainframes, Burles and Sperry and 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 DAC and Wang. We did a whole bunch of terminal emulators. And that that was uh, successful enough. Did you get bought out, or did it go public eventually? Yeah, we ended up selling it to a company called DCA. Kind of ironic, a, a little known story is that you know we were we, we saw what was happening to the mainframe industry was declining, the PC industry was booming, and the mainframes were declining, and we were like trying to figure out what the hell do we do. Um, and so I'd come up with this this product idea. It was called OOT, Object Oriented Terminal, and the goal was to create a uh, use the brains of the PC, um, have a single what the world needed wasn't ten different terminal emulators, it needed just one terminal. Uh, TCP/IP. Um, so we, we basically kind of invented the web, uh, but but didn't think it was a good idea, and we dropped it because we thought the world doesn't need another terminal emulator. So we were so close. That's interesting. Blew it, but it was ooped object-oriented terminal. So when when you first encountered the web, uh, was it sort of like, a, oh shoot, we should have gone in that direction? Yeah, yeah. It was like, oops, could have had that five years earlier. Uh, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't have probably, it, you know, there was obviously lots of other stuff had to happen. So, so tell me about the encountering the internet I, or the web, I suppose. 
this is after you've sold to DCA. So are you looking for a new project to start? Yeah. So I was, I was a pretty early adopter of TCPIP, um, you know, which was the foundation of the, of the internet. Right. So really saw that as kind of, you know, everything else was, was sort of slow, um, uh, communications. Uh, and then I remember first seeing, uh, I was running a research group at, at DCA and we saw, uh, I remember the first time I saw the internet, 2400 baht or 9600 baht. And I just wasn't, wasn't that impressed. Um, and then just kind of went away and, and, and started looking at other stuff. And all of a sudden, the, the, we finally got a T1, convinced the company to put a T1 in. And it was like, wow, this thing's, this is a big idea. So and how, that's probably 1993, 94, maybe. Right. So how soon do you start to get the itch to try to do a company uh, related to web and internet stuff again? Well, we ended up merging with another company called Attachmate and the, and the main owner, CEO, made my decision real easy is that you didn't believe in research. So, uh, I, I, uh, quit a few days after the merger and then really started looking at internet comp, uh, really looking at new product ideas. And it wasn't completely focused on hundred percent on the internet. thought that would be an interesting area, but, um, really kept coming around back to the internet. I mean, one thing I've learned in, you know, sort of PCs and, and networking is that, uh, it, you know, big new technologies cause disjoints, and that's a perfect time to start a company. So I became increasingly convinced that disruption in the, every aspect of the economy. Didn't realize it was that big. I remember our first original business plan, you know, showed, a, I think, a total of a million users connected um, over, I don't know, five-year five, five year period. What What year was that business plan? 1995. Right. So how do you settle on the idea that, that – advertising is your way in is it it's is it obvious that it the internet itself is going to need a a, a business plan a, a way to make money and and this is the most obvious way to do it yeah so i got before that i get we were uh pursuing ideas dwight merriman and i were were uh, brainstorming but slightly before that i i stumbled upon this 20 year old kid who had also dropped out of college georgia tech was living with his grandmother and uh, some lawyer connected us and said, this kid has his product, doesn't know what to do. And uh, uh, it was uh, Internet Security Systems, uh, Chris Klaus. And I found this, he had he'd come up with this um, scanner, this kind of hacking tool um, for, for the good guys. And he had sold it to 10 Fortune 500 companies for 10 grand each. And it was just a brilliant, really recognizing that as, as people connected to the Internet, that virtually every computer system was was horribly exposed and so that turned out to be a really, really good company, but I really wanted to do something on my own. So we, um, Dwight and I were really focused on, okay, this is a, it's like planning a city from, from scratch. You know, what, what, what's the most, what, what does a city need? You know, they need, they need plumbing and sewage and, and uh, electricity. So we're trying to figure out, you know, what was the, for the early days of the internet, what, what's going to be essential. And then it came back to economics, how people are going to make money, right? There was no, there's all government subsidized and, how was it going to unleash? So we took a look at sort of what was CompuServe doing and AOL. How did those things kind of kind of go? Originally, we thought it was going to be the CompuServe model, which was you know you buy a, a subscription and and you uh, uh, you have one subscription and it gives you rights to access sites and the sites would share a part of that subscription. But the more we dug into it, I mean, we were really pursuing that idea. And um, you know, Dwight, one time we kind of concluded, well, subscription maybe, but not really sure. And Dwight goes, well. Why don't we do a network rather than a network for subscriptions? Let's do a network for ads. And I remember walking up to my, um, you know, we've been down in my basement probably three months. Walking up, it was very much an epiphany, as uh, Steve Blank would put it. Um, Welcome to my wife, you know, I got a job. The search is over. <laughs> We're starting. Um, we didn't know what to call it. Our first name was terrible, by the way. It was Internet Advertising Federation. Mm. Very Star Trekky. Did uh, did either of you have any background in in advertising at all? Zero. That's that's incredible. So, it, are you taking a are you taking a technology angle at it first? Like you're going to come up with the software and then to serve the ads, and then you're going to market that. So so Dwight is Dwight is um uh, you may know Dwight now from well, he he was partnered at DoubleClick, but he also mm -hmm. went to do MongoDB and. Mm -hmm. Brilliant engineer, and and I was a software engineer. I'd programmed for ten years, but it was no longer developing. So, the kind of the split was okay. Dwight, you're going to do the technology. I got to go figure out what the hell advertising 
uh, and direct responses. So I bought two books, kind of the definitive books on on advertising, uh, and then I bought, uh, I don't remember what book that was, but then I bought Nash's book, which was a, sort of the Bible of, of direct marketing. It was, I was reading through it, I'm looking at the, and I was like, we can do this, we can do all this, you know, reach and frequency and targeting and, and measuring response rates, like we could do all this stuff, you know, we can, we can take this theory that most people have forgotten in, in the advertising market and uh, make it real on the internet. So really quickly realized that that was going to be our competitive advantage, the TV and print and everything else. So that's your, that's your original insight is that almost the, the internet can sort of make good on, on the promise of, of advertising. Cause it, you know, advertising famously half of it doesn't work. You just don't know which half, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there was, there was two parts. One is, is we looked at all the other traditional medias that had followed, followed before they were all advertising dominated. Right. So years later, uh, uh, I'm a glazer from, from real networks. So the difference between, you know, selling something for a nickel and give it away for free is about 10 million users. So users will always pick free over paid. So, uh, we figured that was going to be the backbone of, of, of the market. But, 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 but we, you know, we were really trying to figure out, you know, was the internet going to be, this highly frank because remember AOL, you know, is the pre, so the precursor for the internet as well as CompuServe. Mm-hmm. You know, was it going to be these walled gardens, or was it going to be completely where where infrastructure was completely disconnected from from content? <clears throat> and our belief was that it was going to be content and infrastructure were going to be completely separate. So, what was the uh, the first product you guys develop? Is it, it is it the dynamic ad targeting software? What was what was the thing that you roll out with and and raise the money with? Yeah, so I mean, it was is the company really never had changed. It was Dart, um, dynamic. I can't remember. We came up with the name first, and then came up with the acronym. I, don't know, I forget what we did, but I think we uh, uh, Dart. I think we came up with Dart because it was like targeted advertising, right? To your point, we we wanted to get rid of the waste, and then we called it, you know, dynamic advertising reporting and targeting or something like that. So uh, that was the basic concept that the internet was going to be hugely fragmented. There's all going to be all these pockets of of, of um, um, uh, audiences. You know, if you really want to control reach and frequency, you'd have to have a single system um, to control it across thousands of websites. So that was pretty much it. I remember we were running this system down in my basement, and I went down there. I don't know, it was two or three. I couldn't sleep. I just remember watching it delivering ads, and uh, and 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 the cash register was ringing. It wasn't ringing too loud back then, but uh. I was like, wow, this is, it was one of the first sort of SaaS applications before that was even a word, but I was like, wow, you know, we're not doing anything. This thing's making money. Love it. Was there, was there any sort of doubt that you had to overcome either among clients that you sign up or, or anybody really that, that advertising can work and can pay on the internet? So there's always, um, so I never had, never had any doubt that the internet was gonna be big, right? I mean, the concept of world's information to anybody at any time for free, I mean, that's a huge concept. How could that not be successful? Um, I knew that advertising in, in, in some method would work. Uh, the question was, and, and that whatever it was, it was gonna find its mark, uh, you know, it's, it's a price, true price. Uh, the question for us, and we were really singularly focused on this, which was, look, our competition is not the internet. We're not competing against I mean, there really was no one else out there selling ads. There was a few people, uh, but that's not the competition. Our competition is TV and radio. Uh, what we've got to focus on is proving that advertising works uh, on the on the internet. And if, once we prove that it works, especially on the direct response side, then it's like you know it's printing money. It's people people are gonna people are gonna buy it all day long. Uh, the branding side was a much much more difficult challenge for us because you know how do you prove branding works? The um, who are who are some of the initial clients? Is it is it just people dipping their toes in the water to to test out this internet thing? Or because I had read at some point that you know your Netscape is an early client and you're delivering at one point ten percent of their revenue, so they obviously knew. Well, actually, they didn't know; otherwise, they would have been a portal sooner. But who were the people that that you originally signed up with? Um. So. The uh, the original. So what happened is that there was there was four of us. 
uh, in my basement in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And we're building the technology. And I, would, I was always going in, in, into the library um, back when you went to the library and picking up Ad Age and um, uh, uh, Ad Age and Ad World or whatever. Um, and so I'm reading this, reading it. I'm always looking for a sort of competition. Uh, and all of a sudden I see this, this, this story about this, uh, company called, uh, DoubleClick and it was Dave Carlick and he's going on how he's going to build this network. And we had not announced yet. This is all sort of complete hush hush. Uh, and he's going to build this network and link it up through technology. And I was like, it was, it was what we were, we were planning on doing too. I'm like, oh, holy crap. You know, this guy's, this guy's beat us to the punch. So I decided to reach out to Dave Carlick was working at a uh, Poppy Tyson, which was owned by BJ Kenny, a big, big ad agency holding company. So I call him up and say, you know, uh, Hey, you know, we're, we're actually doing the same thing. He said, really? And I go, yeah, you know, we're building the technology. He goes, that's great because we don't have any technology. And I'm saying, well, what are you talking about? You 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 announced your product. You said oh, that was just total, you know, kind of bullshit. I was I was just announcing the concept. Uh, we have no technology. Uh, those guys were actually selling Netscape and Excite's uh, inventory. So these guys were it was only four people, right? So mm-hmm. they had four people that were selling um, uh, the early days of advertising that by far the most experience, and uh, were selling a lot of it. And we decided to merge big big mega merger. Um, of our four people, their four people. So uh, that's how, and then, you know, the choice then, our, our name was Internet Advertising Network, and they were called DoubleClick, um, and DoubleClick was clearly a better name. So we ended up merging the company, moving up into, moving, um, so this was an interesting, kind of interesting historically, just looking at, uh, uh, we knew Atlanta probably wasn't where we wanted to stay. Uh, we were technologists, and the choice was, uh, either move to New York or move to Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, obviously the home of technology, but we felt we had the technology cover. That wasn't our problem. It really was the you know, move to move to where your customers are. And 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 at at the time, I mean, New York controlled publishing and, and advertising. You know, seventy five percent of the market. So let's let's go to let's go to New York. Um, and so then we came took on the uh, double click moniker. So at the time that we were selling uh, Excite and and Netscape, so my big push was okay. Look we want you guys to move on to the double click network, our technology. Cause at the time they weren't, they, we couldn't deliver reports to anybody. We couldn't, we couldn't deliver anything. People would give us, you know, hundred thousand dollars, a million dollars. And they just had to believe and trust that we were delivering it. And, and, and we never knew whether they were delivering it. Um, so it was a pretty ugly situation. I think we were probably 20 million in revenue and they basically, we either resigned the accounts or they, they fired us um, because they wouldn't move over to the network. They wouldn't use our technology. Um, and Netscape at the time, we were basically all of Netscape's profits, um, but something they never really sort of talked about or acknowledged. And they're, you know, quite honestly, I think they're a little bit, I'd say they were a little bit ashamed of, of advertising. I think there was only one guy working on it at the, at the company. Um, and then Excite decided to go in-house over time. So it was pretty tough. You know, was, you know, we didn't want to be, we didn't think there was much value in just repping other people's site. Uh, we really needed the technology to deliver on the promise. So, did you did you guys spin out of Poppy Tyson at at some point after that? Yeah, so we were we were a, 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 a separate company. So when we merged. Uh-huh. Uh, we we formed DoubleClick Inc. Uh, they owned uh, I, don't know, I think like fifty five percent of us, which was a problem because all the other ad agencies saw that as kind of a conflict of interest. So we convinced the uh, and they were they were actually a really great partner. Um, I discovered that we could write checks on BJ, K, and E, um, and they would cash them. I basically sort of infinite money to spend. Um, that's had some loose controls over there, so we actually actually got a lot of money for free. So that was that was pretty nice. They were great partners, and they ended up distributing. They saw that the problem that they had, and they ended up distributing their shares to all their shareholders, and so that we were completely independent. But they were trying to sell us. Um, so, you know, at the time, you know, here's an agency, they've got this little experiment going on, and then all of a sudden, the internet takes off. I mean, people are just throwing money at everything. So, they started shopping us around, and we were about a day away from merging with Yahoo. Um, they had offered us, I think, $95 million, and I remember the date, I want to say it's 97 They had offered us $95 million, we wanted $100 million, and... Um, 
I don't know, talks, talks fell apart. Uh, and they really wanted to sell us bad. And so I kind of on the side went and talked to uh, Bank Capital and, and Greylock to see if we could buy ourselves out from them. And that, that's, effect, that's, that's what we ended up doing, buying ourselves out from those guys. So you got you specifically don't have a Madison Avenue background. What what was what was it like? What what how did Madison Rea- Avenue react to the coming of the web and the internet and and to you guys? I'm assuming that you guys are you know t- taking a new scientific approach to to the advertising stuff. What was what were you what were your relationships like with traditional Madison Avenue people? So yeah, in the beginning, it's really, really rough. It's like, why do I want to use the internet? No one's using the internet. I don't, I've never heard of the internet. You know, go away. Um, but there was pockets. You know, there was internet companies. Internet companies were getting funded, so they had some money, so they knew the power of it. Uh, but a real big coup for us is we end up um, hiring Wendell Millard. Uh, Wendell Millard knows everyone, and she came from the publishing. She came from the advertising sales side, so she she knew the traditional media. Um, and she could really, was really great at bridging that gap. Um, and I think the big thing that we did is, is one is we, the terms we use were the terms that they were familiar with. All the Silicon Valley companies were making up new terms. They're making up, you know, they weren't using reach and frequency and, and CPM. They were just making up stuff, right? Uh, what we did is we, we couched everything in terms that they knew. Um, and then, you know, we really offered ourselves a sort of, yeah, education. So at one point, no one wanted to talk to us. And then at another point, everyone wanted to talk to us because their clients were saying, hey, this Internet thing looks huge. Uh, why aren't we on it? What, what do you guys know about it? You know, what's our why, why haven't you recommended anything to us? So we really put ourselves out there as, hey, let us help educate you guys. You know, we're not selling you. Let's just show you how it all works. And uh, so we spent a lot of time educating agencies or clients and um, and how, how all the system works as well as publishers. Um, I'm glad you brought up things like CPM and and stuff like that. I, I've, I've been asking everybody that I've been talking to in advertising really basic stuff. Like, do you remember how the, the forms came to be like, okay, we've decided that a banner is going to be these dimensions and, um, a, a, a page should have only a certain amount of ads or an ad should only be shown to a certain person two or three times before there's diminishing returns. Do you remember, were, were those things sort of felt out and, and decided upon sort of ad hoc or, or was there any kind of science behind that? So y- y- yes and no. So the one thing when, when um, um, what we felt, the most important thing in moving out this is there had to be standards within the within the industry. So we stole a play out of the, the Microsoft book, which was uh, we'll just establish the standard uh, or we'll get a couple of other big players together and we'll just say, look, this is the new standard and roll it out. So we did that. We said, look, the banner, that's the new standard. Um, there was no scientific, necessary scientific anything about that. It was just seemed like a you know, from a, a the number of pixels it took on the page, it was, you know, kind of equivalent to print advertising. Um, then the next one is that there actually was a lot of theory and, and reach and frequency. Um, and, you know, they talked a lot about frequency. And then we did sort of the one, one of the first definitive studies on frequency, the effect of frequency on click-through rates. That was pretty easy to do. And, you know, we were able to prove sort of diminishing returns after three, click, three um, um, exposures. Which matched up pretty well with sort of what traditional media had found, um, and so you know we, we just kept doing more and more proof points, um, and you know standard standardization. You know agencies didn't want you know, literally there must have been fifty different type creative types, um, and yeah people thought that was great, but agents that's not the way agencies work. Agencies want to develop one creative and then blow it out, get maximum. They want to spend their money on reach and frequency, not on not on creative. And are when when you're coming up with things like CPM rates, are you guessing there as well, or are you just copying maybe what was already in the in the print the the print CPM rates and things like that? Yeah, I mean, you know that. So probably the biggest breakthrough that that um, DoubleClick had was that you know we approached this as is a a as a yield optimization. Right, we had three parties to satisfy. Uh, we had publishers want a maximum revenue. 
uh, advertisers want it want it want it maximum effectiveness, so lowest cost per per whatever per action, and then consumers wanted something that was you know sort of relative to them. We you know we're always trying to predict what would somebody react to, um, and so we came to the very quick uh, conclusion. We stole this from the uh, uh, American Airlines, uh, who really I forget the guy that did it. it was the same guy that did the uh, frequent flyer, but he'd come up with sort of the yield management that one, when a plane leaves with an empty seat. Um, you know, that was, that was a wasted opportunity. So one of the things that we did is we seg- really quickly segmented inventory. We, you know, every, every space that was unsold was, was, um, um, now I'm forgetting the word, but you know, it's like rotten, rotten food. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, our goal was every, every space should be sold. So we started from the bottom up, we would go out and you want to buy lots of advertising uh, without commit, you know, without you may not get it. Right. It, it, it may be um, you may not know where it's going uh, or you may get bumped out, but it's very opp- opportunistic. You know, you can buy it for a buck and then we would sell out the premium spaces, the premium spots, you know, highly targeted inventory, you know, at the top dollar mm-hmm. and then kind of keep keep, you know, keep segmenting the inventory and selling it to the highest the highest um, buyer. I mean, a lot of it was based on sort of print. Um, there were always those rumors that you would hear over the years that, you know, something like 90% of, of the inventory is, is unsold and, and you're just, you know, throwing ads up there for free. Uh, were you able to, was it a, a case of you were effectively targeting certain specific things and so those were highly profitable and then, you know, just the the vast unwashed other 90% was just anything you could serve up? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we love, you know, for us, there was a, a buyer for everything. And with direct responders, uh, direct responders, direct response, um, direct marketing companies, uh, we loved them. They were great because uh, they, uh, they would take all the inventory we give them as long as it worked. So we were really focused on performance. So, you know, when you, when you get rid of that unsold inventory, we don't have, you don't have, when everything is sold, um, you know, people have to pay up in order to get it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we looked at this very much, uh, again, as yield management, there should be zero unsold inventory. Um, you know, find that market, put restrictions on everything, right? It's like, you know, look, you can't be a business traveler and show up at the airport and get on a plane and allow that. Um, but it was all sort of figuring out people will pay a premium for placement uh, people pay a premium for frequency and reach. They'll pay a premium for select target audiences. So it's really, you know, if you the more control you want it, the more the higher you're going to pay. And then you know, as soon as at, at some point, you're right. The market became so competitive, there's so much money in the internet that people were. It, it really stopped working. People were paying too much for inventory. They were paying way too much. Um, and then the dot com crash came along and back to lots of available inventory. Right. Uh, sort of related to that question then, um, I've asked everybody what the, the click-through rates were like early on, and everyone said that early on they were what we would think would be phenomenal today because it was it was a, a new thing. People hadn't seen ads on, on the internet before. Do you remember what the click-through rates were like initially, and, and did they go down over time and normalize? Oh yeah, I mean there were. You know, I think there was click-through rates probably, you know, five percent, ten percent wasn't atypical. You know, there's probably three percent made might have been the average, and then you know it kept declining to to one percent, and and uh, people are very focused on click-through rates. So click-through, there was a lot of click-through rate arbitrage. I, always, I remember I used to tell people, look, if you want clickers, uh, target Indonesia. You know, they were the they were like fifteen percent click-through rates. Uh, they just love clicking on ads, um, but so it didn't really mean much. For us, uh, the big sort of definitive study that we did is we were able to prove that branding worked on online, um, that you you literally could influence. And this was tying, I remember the study exactly, but we might, we did it with a, a company that had linked it to off, offline purchase behavior. Um, and we were able to show that, you know, you could influence offline purchases uh, through branding. And, and the internet was a real funky, and it still is today. You know, is it branding or direct response, or is it both? Um, it's both. So switching just a bit, um, you know, DoubleClick uh, 
grew really, really rapidly and became wildly successful sort of, you know, as the internet is, is blowing up as well. Um, you know, at some point in, in the late nineties, you've, you, you've got a company that's got locations all over the world and thousands of people, right? What, what was, what was it like for you to, to be right? You had already had a, a an earlier company that was successful, but was, was the dot-com mania and, and double clicks growth different than what you had experienced before? Yeah. I mean, I think it was, the internet was different than what anyone had experienced before. I mean, it was, it was, it was insanity. Um, you, you know, I think I was, I was actually probably one of the older CEOs at the time. I think, you know, we started the company, I was 32 or something. And by then, um, what would I have been like 36 or 37 sort of in the later days. And I, I mean, one thing that our company was very focused on was like, I never, never really bought into this whole new economy thing. Um, it's, it's, it's the same economy. It's just, it's more efficient. Uh, so this whole concept of giving away products and services and it, it just became kind of a joke. Um, you know, the public, ironically, the public markets through the consumers were, were subsidizing, um, subsidizing all this stuff. So, you know, I pretty much knew the day of reckoning was going to come. Um, for me, it was, I remember going to the airport and I think every publication had, you know, someone from the internet on the cover. And I think I'd just shown up in the uh, W magazine, you know, 50 most people, interesting people to have lunch with. I'm like, this is, this is not a good sign. It really reminded me of, of the, of the story of, um, I'm going to forget the name. Um, uh, back you know, right before the crash, the guy was getting his, uh, shoe shined by by the guy and he asked for a stock tip and broke uh, uh what the hell was his name but he, he went out and sold all the stocks and he said look when the shoe shine guy is um uh investing in the market then it's time to sell it wasn't it wasn't Plodget, was it <laughs> no <laughs> 1928 right okay um, so it was uh, uh it was that kind of i'm like we this industry is this isn't real we know when when people become, we all somewhere the internet people were like the pop stars. That's pretty sad. Well, I should say sad, but you know, it just wasn't realistic. But at the same time, um, you know, specifically with things like, like let's say IPO madness. I mean, um, you know, at at some point you're gonna IPO because everyone's doing it, and why not? And and if you don't do it, um your competitors are going to have all have raised all this money that you won't have. And you guys got into the, uh, doing a lot of acquisitions and things like that, right? Yeah. I mean, we look, we were very, um, you know, raising money, get big quick. That was the, that was the big thing. Um, you know, if you could, if you had the money, you had the market capitalization, you know, you had the infrastructure, you know, you were going to be in the, it was a land grab, a land grab that, you know, no one's ever seen, uh, seen before. So we were, uh, and it was interesting at the time too. Uh, we're all, you know, we were all delusional uh, in the sense. And I remember somebody told me I, I was talking to someone about acquiring a company, and I couldn't understand the valuations. It was Grant Gregory. I was on our board. He's like, Kevin, let me put it this way: It's like trading two ten thousand dollar cats for your twenty thousand dollar dog. You know, it has nothing to do. It, it is all relative valuations. Um. And I think we all fell into that trap, which is, I remember at the time we were, we were at a, uh, um, I don't know, $15 billion valuation. And there was this piece of crap company from CMGI. Uh, I can't remember. Engage, I think it was. I shouldn't say, sorry, it wasn't a piece of crap. But it was, it was a, a very small player, you know, big story, very small player. But it had like a $25 billion market cap. And so we were just, you know, you know, we, this is just ridiculous. We're worth so much more than that. <laughs> and, and what a lot of people forgot to say is like, well, maybe none of us are worth, you know, that was, that was, uh, uh, maybe nobody was worth that much. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? <laughs> maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Well, because you guys are sort of right there on the ground with with the advertisers, and I'm sure at some point other dot-coms are, are you know, a large percentage of your clients... Were you guys able to see when things were starting to go south sooner than than everybody else did? I didn't. I wish I had known Warren Buffett uh, uh, adage on this that the the first sign of a of a, an economy is slowing ad sales. If I would have known that, you know, we would have made would have made done a lot better. Um, no, we saw you know advertising is the canary in the in the coal mine. Um, you were able to see, you know, right, because there's one thing you can cut, you don't have to fire anybody. So people were just cutting back in ad budgets. And then all of a sudden, you know, ad budgets disappeared. 75% of our, our customers went out of business. But, so it was pretty brutal. But you guys are still, you know, even after the bust, you guys are still a viable company that I'm assuming, you know, you, I'm sure you had your share of layoffs and things like that. But what are you, what are you guys looking like after the bust, uh, you're, you're, there's still people that want to put ads on the web, right? Yeah. So there was sort of two things happening. Um, you know, Jeff Epstein was our CFO, and and he was a, he taught me a brilliant lesson, which was I was like, Jeff, why the hell are we raising money? I understand. He was doing some convertible preferred, and he said, Kevin, when people want to give you money, get money. Um, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And I was like, you know, I'd been through through a couple of recessions and bumps. I was like, you yeah, know, you're you're right. So we literally had done our secondary, I think we raised something like 400 million. Um, we literally did that, I don't know, weeks, maybe, a, I don't know, a couple months, a month, I don't forget what it was, but right before the market shut down. And the market was already declining. I remember we, we priced it, at, I forget what it was, maybe it was $100. $100. And by the time um, you know, we went to actual, to, to, for the secondary, it was probably down to like 70. And people were like, well, you're gonna pull it, right? Jeff's like, no, you know, that's, that's, that's crazy. You know, we, we should go through with it. So we raised a bunch of money. We were really financially sound. Uh, but we also knew that, look, you gotta, you got, we didn't know what was happening, what was going to happen, right? When 75% of your customers, you don't know how, you don't know how far it's going to go down. So we probably overcut. I mean, we, we cut, cut back probably 40%, um, and really focus on our, our most profitable businesses. We had some very profitable businesses. So, so that helped. So that was rough, um, you know. And, and a lot of those people end up going on to going on to Google and Facebook. So um, they're pretty they worked out pretty well for everybody. But um, you know, our our I think what most companies the mistake they made is that they were they were delusional. Um, oh, it's not going to be that bad. We'll cut we'll cut five percent, and then it's like holy crap, it's worse than we thought. Um, but it's not going to be that bad, so we'll cut fifteen percent. And then, you know, pretty soon they're out of business. And, and our mantra all really through the, through the whole life of the business was we're in business to stay in business. And sorry, but we've got to right size. You know, we've got to get rid of real estate. We've got to, we're going to come back and get ourselves in a, where we're profitable. And then we can go from there. You know, let's see where it all settles out. So was it a mistake? You know, probably cut too much. Um, but we made it through. Yeah, and actually, how quickly did things sort of rebound? Because I remember from that time, I always used to base it on the quality of engineer that I could hire for really, really cheap. And, you know, in 2001, 2002, you could hire insanely talented people because everybody was out of work. How how quickly did stuff bounce bounce back for you guys in terms of the advertising industry in general? I mean, it really didn't. It was a tough you know, we ended up selling the company in 2005. And at the time, it still was not clear, you know, and things had kind of settled out, but it wasn't clear whether how how long it was going to take to get back to, to growth. I mean, the problem with us is we were we were uh, not growing. 
uh, as much as we needed to. And we needed to restructure. We, we had a whole bunch of, we had too much money on the balance sheet. We had all sorts of problems that was going to be tough to handle in the public market. But um, it wasn't clear that the, it, it, they were very interesting businesses, but it wasn't clear it was going to be huge. Ironically, three years later, 2008, um, it just became a rampage. Everyone, you know, within a six month period, you know, everyone had bought these advertising uh, networks. You know, Google felt that, you know, they, they needed, you know, Dart was necessary to control uh, uh, advertising. Microsoft was was left at the altar. You know, I wasn't part of it at the time, so I'm mm-hmm. not sure all the inside story. So they ended up buying um, a Quantiv, you know, which ended up writing off the entire thing. I mean, all the other companies, they, I think, have been written off. Um, uh, but, you know, DoubleClick actually went on and it's a big, big part of it's a multi-billion dollar business for uh Google, which is great. Right. Just so the listener is clear, um, in 2008, I think it was, uh, Google bought DoubleClick, right? Yeah, it was from the uh, Hellman Freeman who had, who had bought it in 2005. They made a killing. They made it, they absolutely destroyed it for uh, their uh, limited partners. Unfortunately, I was not part of it. When did you actually leave DoubleClick? Uh, 2005. 2005. So I have a, a, a couple of... Um, sort of looking back in hindsight sort of questions. Um, you guys uh, famously ran into controversy around uh, issues of privacy and ad targeting um, really kind of early on. And my question is, you know, considering how sophisticated advertising on the web is today and considering, I guess, maybe even the state of privacy in general in our current society, online and off, I guess, uh, what do you think about those controversies now looking back? Were they overblown maybe? You know, well, I've had a lot of time to, to, to reflect on it. And, you know, it was, it was probably the most trying time uh, it, it personally for, for me, um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we became um, from one story in the in USA today in a matter, I probably had, you know, a thousand stories, um, uh, Bill Clinton was going to, was going to talk about it as, as, uh, a little known story. Um, he was going to talk about it and mention double click in his, um, state of the union. And, and we were fortunately able to get that pull from, from, um, uh, uh, from, from a Senator was able to get that, get that taken away. Um, you know, it, it was, it was a, it was an overblown issue, but it was a legitimate issue. Um, a lot of the problem was, you know, when we stepped back and looked at it, it was there was no rules. Um, you know, it was like playing uh, pickup football, and you know, everyone's arguing. You know, everyone's arguing about what the rules are. What's the what's the what's the goal line? What's the what's the first down? You know, and and so you know, we stepped back and said, look, let's put together industry rules. We'll talk. You know, we'll 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 do that in conjunction with sort of government as well as uh, 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 privacy. You know, reasonable privacy groups. It would come up with a set of standards so people know what the rules are and that there's no surprise. And, and that was the right thing to do. Um, ironically, at the time, you know, we were testing something what we call boomerang. We, we had kind of invented this, this thing where you um, uh, we thought that the biggest um, predictor of advertising was going to be purchase intent. So we came up with this idea like let's let's uh, a cookie someone on. on uh, I think Victoria Secrets was actually our first first test uh, for people who uh we're interested, you know, you've spent all this money getting them to your site and then you lose them because they're anonymous and, and let's retarget them. And so that was the whole retargeting thing. And uh, we, uh, uh, the results were off the chart. I mean, from a direct response side, it was something at 1200% lift. It was so off the chart and there, it was like discovering cold fusion. Uh, we were so excited. This is going to be a billion dollar idea. And then the privacy thing hit, right? And then the retargeting kind of died for, for a long time. And now it's, I mean, it is, it's a huge part of the, I don't know how big it is, but it's a big part of the advertising industry. Well, and, and look at Facebook's stock price. Yeah. 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 So I think, you know, look, I, our view was what we learned, you know, when I learned, learned everything is that three things that people really care about, um, which is well, one, people don't want, they don't want data to be used against them. And that, I think there was a big misperception. Uh, the fact is that targeting ad, targeted ads work. They work better. It's better for the consumer. People want it. Uh, but you got to give them a choice. So when you give them the choice, you know, like we, we invented the first sort of global opt-out, right? We were getting so much heat. You would think that, my God, this is, this is on 
like all the major, you know, it was, it was everywhere. So we, we said, look, you can come in opt out anytime you want. We had like 10 people a day. Um, but those 10 people were the loudest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we learned, look, you got to give these guys a, a, a thing to opt out. But, you know, it's an interest, you know, privacy and everything. It's a, it's an interesting thing. If you don't use it against people, um, and you, and you make it better for them, then, then they're fine. But there's legitimate concerns. Um, you know, I'm well, not throwing NSA or any of that stuff. So, I, but I, I wonder if it's also maybe just like a classic case of it was slightly ahead of its time. You know, when I go to a website now and, and it shows up every day for the next month on my, you know, Facebook timeline, I kind of don't care anymore because Facebook's already sort of trained me not to care about that stuff anymore. I mean, now I think it's so prevalent. Um, I think where people get freaked out is when people start using, you know, there's three things that people don't, don't want you to know about. They don't want, they don't want health, financial and, you know, sexual things. Um, and I think, you know, the, look, the mistake that we made, we were going to, we were going to merge what was formerly anonymous information on the web and, and make it, um, uh, merge it with offline, make it not anonymous. And, and that was a big, you know, when we went through the sending the guidelines for the internet, we said, look, okay, we can't, we can't do that without, we can't make that connection without the user knowing it, without the user's consent. Now, I believe people are doing that today. Uh, I, I think it's kind of the, I think, if it, I think there's big problems on the internet. I think there's, a, it's a wild west. Um, it's so complicated. I think people are, you know, stealing data. Uh, people are, are merging data inappropriately. Um, no one really knows what's going on. What do you what do you think of advertising as it's as it's evolved today? I mean, you know, it, uh, surely the the complexity of like you're talking about the the amount of data that people are collecting, the sophistication of you know the the algorithms and the analytics and the data that that marketers can you know chop into pieces and things like that. It has to be orders of magnitude different than what you guys were doing, say, in 1996 or 97, right? Uh, yes. So I, I mean, look. Mo- I think most of the really useful data that people are, are figuring out is is purchase intent. It's uh, uh, I mean, one of the reasons we started find the best. You know, I know how tough it is to be a publisher, seeing on the other side at, at, at DoubleClick, is that you know find the best. We're we're really just focused on purchase intent, um, and you know it works. It works extremely well um, when users when consumers are looking for let's say a car a truck to buy, they want to see. Uh, ads that have to do with you know, the trucks that they're looking at. You know, maybe there's $1,500 rebate. You know, at the at the local uh, you know Nissan. Uh, you know, that's all very positive. The um, another uh, uh, sort of a final looking back question. You know, I'm New York based, and and I think that you know for the whole Silicon Alley, whatever whatever that scene was, but even more so for the New York tech scene today. I feel like um, DoubleClick was really sort of um, a really foundational company. Like, there's so many people, you know, over the years that I've run into that got their start at DoubleClick. So many companies uh, were started by people that that were at DoubleClick. Um, talk a little bit about, I mean, maybe even just specifically for the New York tech scene, like maybe DoubleClick's legacy in terms of um, making New York part of part of the tech scene. So, you know, for, you know, just an interesting story about, about that. I mean, we, we always used to get asked when the internet was kind of booming, people would come and do interviews and all over the world. And they would say, you know, where is the Silicon Alley? And we're all like scratching our head going, hell if I know, I don't, I don't there is no Silicon Alley. And, and, and our guy, uh, head of marketing, Lee Nadler said, you know what? Silicon Alley is right here on the corner. <laughs> and I don't even remember. Remember, you put up that big sign that said uh, "Welcome to Silicon Alley," right on the um, back of the uh, Flatiron Building, right? Yes, and it was brilliant. I mean, that was like one of the one of my favorite marketing stories. And so that got in. You know, everyone would say, "Here it is. It's it's worse. We're, we're Silicon Alley." They're taking pictures of it. You know, it was kind of kind of cool. Um, uh, oh, so what? One of the reasons I think DoubleClick. You know, look, our our the way we approached business at, at DoubleClick was. I think, I think somewhat unique, you know, most people focus on sort of profits and revenue. We focused on solving problems. Um, you know, what would, you know, to me, the purpose of any business is 
solve a big problem better than anyone else. And we were relentless at that. We, well, we did strategic planning. We spent almost all of our time on, on innovating. Like what, forget about, you know, hey, our strategic plan is to grow profits by 15% a year and, you know, uh, double our, our, our revenue. We never even talked about that. That was never part of our, our strategy. Our strategy was always, what big problem are we going to solve? So the whole company was really innovative. Um, and, I, and I think you saw that. I mean, it was people spun out. And they continue to, to take that sort of innovation and, and, um, and solve problems. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if, you know, the only way to create value for a company um, is to solve a big problem. And the bigger problem you solve, the more value you create. And the storage of value is money. So people give it to you. That was the, uh, and I think that's, I think that's transferred over to, to a lot of the folks that left. And are you still with uh, Find the Best today? Uh, yep. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, find the best. We um, launched coming up on four years now. We help um, about 24 million people a month make uh, with a research engine. We help them make um, major decisions, research major decisions anywhere from you know which car to buy, which college to go to, uh, which which CRM software. So we cover 2,000 topics. Uh, we have over sorry, just lost my. We have over. Um, 700 million things um, and over 70 billion uh, attributes describing those things. So, you know, we, we, we've amassed an enormous amount of information to help people put things in context. Um, so we just, our biggest new launch recently, a couple weeks ago was uh, Home. So a competitor to Zillow and Trulia. Hmm. Well, and it's a, it's about that purchasing intent there, right? Completely. You know, people, People, uh, we discovered a lot of interesting stuff about research. One is people, people want more data. Um, they want, they're, they're worried about missing information and, and they're willing to spend the time. Um, and the wonderful thing about that, I think the internet is that people were very scared about this. Marketers were horrified about it is that in the old days, there was this information asymmetry. You know, the marketer knew everything and the consumer knew nothing. Right? It was kind of the gazelle lion. Uh, now, now, uh, the informed, you know, the consumer is completely informed, you know, for our, our homes, we tell them everything. We tell them how, you know, what's the neighborhood like, what's the schools like, you know, what's the crime, uh, what's the square footage price compared to others, other houses in the neighborhood. We, we tell them everything. And, and, and one thing I think marketers have finally discovered good marketers is that, you know, an informed consumer, uh, is a, is a, uh, a, a buying consumer. People don't buy because they're nervous. They're afraid of making a mistake. Uh, when they have all the information, they buy. You know, think about when you buy a car, car, or, or go to college or something. When you when you when you have that information, um, you feel more much more confident. Right, and it's, it's the confidence. Yes, and then our tagline is research with confidence. Well, uh, Kevin O'Connor, thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it, Brian. It's not. I don't. I don't really. I don't like to look back in life. So, but it's it's fun every once in a while. I mean, the internet was. I'm glad you're capturing this. There's a lot of a lot of crazy, interesting stuff that went on back then. Long time ago. Coming up on 20 years now. Right, exactly. Pretty wild. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.